on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. Happy New Year to everybody. Is it really a happy new year? <laughs> it feels like it's well, the same year for the last three years. How are you, Sally? That was a gloomy way look, to start. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm not great, but I'm still here to say happy new year because last year was really hard. And so we've spoken on the pod last year that this same turn of the Gregorian calendar, Francis, like I'm really into this arbitrary line in the sand thing. Like I know that not only calendar years are a construct, but also time is a construct. And yet still, I'm I'm really into New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Like I love resolutions. I love taking a moment to reflect on the year. I'm, yeah, big into it. So I, I, I do like to say Happy New Year, you know, aspirationally. Fair enough. And a yellow card for me for being a miserable bastard at the very first podcast, <laughs> the very first sentence I added this year. Fair enough. Oh, okay. If you, um, you like doing a New Year's resolution, let's go back to last year's resolution and what it was and whether you actually, or resolutions, and whether you actually attained or neared your goal and then tell us what you've decided this year's resolution is. I don't even remember what they were like. Last year. So that's probably in and of itself tells you all you need to know. But um, so I used to have really big, bold resolutions, sort of like pre-COVID, but now they've become much smaller, you know, as with most elements of many people's lives. And so my main resolution, which will sound daft if you're someone who finds this easy, but I find this very difficult, is simply to finish a task before I start a new task. <laughs> That's it. I just want to pra- really practice like finishing whatever the thing I'm doing, whether it's like a big work project or like a new hobby or even just little things like you know, finish folding the washing before you, you know, start something else. So no more multitasking. Yeah, practicing completing one thing before I start a new thing. I'll, I'll let you all know how it goes. <laughs> I haven't been good at it historically. <laughs> Very practical and something that you can sort of check yourself on on a regular basis. My one this year is to try to read more fiction because I'm 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 a typical white middle-aged man. I tend to just read a lot of non-fiction history books, mm. which my uh, my daughter, who is a literary whiz and and loves uh, loves the world of fiction, shakes her head and goes, Dad, you need to read more fiction. It's a bad literary diet. So I'm going to try and read more fiction because I find that as the year goes on, my reading tends to drop away because you're so, you're so caught up in work and, and thinking about the issues of the day that you don't give yourself time to, to read. And when you do read, like in summertime, you go, oh, this is great. I've forgotten how much mm. I enjoy the book. So another humble goal trying to read more fiction. So I I also don't really read fiction. I tend to like really nerdy like political analysis books. <laughs> but um but I did read a fantastic um fiction book last year which I will warmly recommend to you. Uh it's by Jacqueline Maley who is the journalist and columnist um for the Sydney Morning Herald and she wrote a book called The Truth About Her. The synopsis is I mean it's sort of self-referential I think to Jack's 
life, but sort of like a reporter at the biggest newspaper in Sydney reports on a social media influencer who's been scamming her followers essentially or like made up a lie about having cancer, I think it is, and then the reporter reports the story and then the next day the influencer kills herself. Sorry, I should have put a trigger warning there. But the the story is called The Truth About Her and it's sort of exploring the role between journalism and public interest and truth in reporting, truth on social media. Anyway, really great fiction yarn. Loved it. On the list. Put that book on the list. Excellent. Thank you for the recommendation, Sally. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so in the world of work, though, it's been a really tough start to the year. In some ways, it's been more difficult in uh, 2022 than it was last year because the boundaries that we'd set for ourselves around uh, COVID protocols have all melted away and the support required to help people make good decisions and stay healthy have also not materialised, like rats, a rapid antigen test. So it's a really, really crazy time out there. Have you had personal experience of just how this is impacting people at the moment, Sally? Yeah, I mean, everyone has COVID, you know, like my partner and I had COVID, my daughter's dad and his partner had COVID, all my friends have had it, like, over the last two or three weeks. And... During all of that time, personally, I didn't have access to tests. So I actually never tested positive. Yeah, I couldn't get access to a rapid test and I went to the PCR line the wrong time, you know, like, and it's been incredibly challenging, not only with the sort of ground zero sickness of it all, but I feel like over the last two and a bit years, all of us, and I imagine everyone listening, if you live in an area that has been really impacted by COVID and by lockdowns, like all of us have created community networks and sort of like our own safety nets between neighbours and friends and family members and even just sort of, you know, via social media communities. Um, And it's been that webbing of the social net that's caught each other. But now, what in the last few weeks, everyone's been sick at once and everyone's been in isolation at once. And so, you know, I'm in several group uh, chats or, you know, messaging chats or social media groups and people are just like, does anyone have a test? And people are like, no, I can't. Or like, can anyone go grab some groceries? Uh, and the responses are all like, sorry, mate, I'm in ISO. Sorry, I've got COVID. Like, it's all come undone the net that we weaved for each other and ourselves over the last two years has been torn apart it sure has and that only adds to the stress and the worry about what lies ahead because now the uncertainty is at a a peak for most people even though we've been vaccinated we've been boosted and we still don't quite know what the world of work is going to look like as we head into the third year of this pandemic and the the really frustrating thing about all of this has been the way that people have in power, particularly the federal government, have talked about the economy as the most important element in all of this and have removed the one key element to the economy, which is the most precious and dynamic aspect of it all, and that is people, workers, those that do the jobs that deliver the food and uh, and <laughs> dig the coal out of the ground if we're still selling that stuff or are able to drive your train or deliver food on long-distance hauling trucks. All of those things have uh, become deeply impacted because we haven't factored the human presence into the economy and it's not valued by those people making the decisions. Yeah, it's not valued. I think he's absolutely right. But I think also 
what's clear to many observers is that it's also just fundamentally not understood. It's actually quite simple for people in positions of, you know, logistical, organisational, financial power to be like, damn, we're so grateful for nurses. How good are supermarket shelf stackers? Like, they rock. But actually there's no understanding of from I'm thinking of Scott Morrison's government in particular there's no understanding of how these industries operate and function and how these workforces show up to work every day well I spoke with Dr Jim Stanford about this particular issue because uh, he is uh, in charge of the Center for Future Work he's an economist that looks at these issues and he wrote a great piece in the conversation I'll include it in the show notes about this very issue and how getting this wrong and not factoring the human element into the economy has been and will continue to be a disaster until we change it. Here he is, Dr. Jim Stanford here on The Job. Jim, welcome back to On The Job. How are you? I'm very well, Francis. Thanks for having me, comrade. How are you negotiating the madness of uh, year three of the pandemic? Who knew that we would uh, turn this into a trilogy, but here we are. Unbelievable. I remember thinking, you know, if everyone just hit hit away for two weeks at the beginning of this whole thing, we could beat it back. And here we are entering the third year. On the other hand, it's uh, given us some important lessons, I think, in how the world works, how the economy works. And uh, I really believe this is a moment where the union movement has proven, first of all, why we're here and why we're necessary. And secondly, shown that we've got a vision for how to build a society that works better, pandemic or no pandemic. Absolutely. And I mean, just in uh, the last couple of days, we've seen that situation in South Australia at Taze, the meatpacking plant, where unions have had to push back really hard against a health order, which said that workers, even if they were positive with COVID, should go back to work because Basically, the supply chain was more important than their health. And Michelle O'Neill and Sally McManus and the rest of the union movement uh, uh, held the line there and actually forced the company and Woolworths, the recipient of that supply chain, the big retailer, to reverse that position. But the fact that unions had to make that argument, given all the sacrifices people have made to try and stay healthy over the last two years, it's insane, Jim. How did we get here? It it is an incredible moment, I think, where we have all been reminded that there is one force that makes the economy work, and that's labor. That's the people who get their butts out of bed on Monday morning and go off to do their job. And they produce goods and services, and they generate income, and they add to GDP. And then when their job is over, they go and spend their income, and that's also vital to keeping the economy going. And, you know, uh, Francis, we, we so often speak about the economy in these very abstract dollars and cents terms, you know, things like what's the value of the uh, ASX index today and what's the quarterly growth in GDP. And even when we talk about supply chains and logistics, it's like we're talking about things that are out there. But in reality, it's actually people. And, um, you know, through our center, when we teach economics, we always start with people. We say this is uh, this is how the economy works. It's the working people using their brains and their brawn to produce the goods and services that we need to survive and thrive. And if Scott Morrison and Dom Perrottet and all the others running this show had taken our course and remembered that workers are the engine that drives the economy forward, 
they wouldn't have made some of these horrible mistakes that have put us in this mess. So you put it like that, and it is obvious that that's the case. Well, it should be obvious that that that's the case, and. They have argued long and hard, Morrison and Perrottet and others, that they were going to put the economy first and in that sense had removed Labor from that particular equation. Surely they must have seen that that would have led to a failure, a systems failure within the economy. How could they not see that? Or is the ideology so embedded now that they just have a blind spot? Well, I I think to some extent it is ignorance. Um, You know, I think they do believe their own own propaganda and they drink their own Kool-Aid about, you know, how it's all about business and it's all about capital and it's all about entrepreneurship. And they forget the more humble human beings doing their jobs that get us through. I also think it's a a bit of a deliberate choice. You know, when Morrison stands up and says we've got to protect the economy and pretends that there's a trade-off between the economy and the health of working people, he actually isn't thinking about the economy. He uses the economy as a you know, in a way, a code word for something else. He's thinking about business. He's under pressure from all kinds of employers who've got a very short-sighted view about this pandemic and how how they should respond. And we've heard them all. We've heard them from the beginning of the pandemic, resisting any of the restrictions, the travel restrictions, the capacity restrictions, the obviously the lockdowns, uh, anything else that infringes on their ability to try and make profit tomorrow. That's how short-sighted they are. Even though you know, collectively, the pandemic is bad for their own business. There's, you know, there's there's really uh, nothing that's going to hurt their sales more than the fact that people are sick and can't come to work and can't go out shopping. Despite that, they're so short-sighted, they're pressuring the government to open up and uh, support business. And uh, Morrison and the others listen to that because that's that's who put them there. That's their base. So when they say that they're doing it to protect the economy, what they actually mean is they're doing it to protect business and the owners of businesses who are the critical supporters, uh, the financial supporters and the critical political supporters of that vision of uh, Australian society. But, you know, on the other hand, it's been a wake up call for everyone else. You know, we can talk in abstract terms about the economy and supply chains and logistics. But when one third or more of workers can't go and do their jobs, guess what happens? supermarket shelves don't have anything on them and supply chains break down and hospitals and schools end up in chaos. So for the rest of us, this is a teachable moment. Workers are not indispensable. Workers are not, you know, uh, a sort of a sideshow. Workers are the core of the economy. And without workers, the economy cannot function. And I hope that we take this moment uh, in our movement and use it to develop more consciousness in society about the importance of work and more solidarity and commitment to protecting work and valuing workers. I mean, you've done the numbers on this and just how the situation has evolved so rapidly to a a situation of enormous crisis in Australia from relative stability over the first two years of the pandemic when we did have lockdowns, but the infection rates weren't as bad. And basically what's happened in the last two months since the Omicron variant and the opening up is every bit as bad as as, uh, as we could have expected with 3% or 4% usually of the workforce off ill at any one time in pre-pandemic areas. Those numbers have just gone through the roof, haven't they? Oh, there was probably risen tenfold. We're probably looking at a third or more of workers in the hardest hit areas like New South Wales who either caught COVID or were exposed to COVID or have to stay home from work to care for someone because of COVID, either the, their family member who's ill or kids who couldn't go to childcare. Soon it will be kids who can't go to school. 
So, you know, for all of these reasons, the impact on production and on income and on spending is devastating. There is some evidence, you know, it takes a while for the official ABS statistics to come out. So we'll see down the road how bad the hit was in January. But we do get kind of more real-time data from other sources like the banks. They uh, keep track of how much uh, people are spending on their credit cards, how much uh, economic activity is going on. And the, the evidence is already there that the downturn in the economy in New South Wales is worse under Omicron than at any of the lockdowns that were imposed before. And, you know, frankly, we should have we should have known that uh, Australia went through the first year and a half of the pandemic and it was hard. No doubt about it. People made sacrifices, but the infection rate here was low. The death rate was low compared to other countries and the economy was stronger than most other industrial countries. And those two went hand in hand. That wasn't an accident. The reason Australia's economy was stronger and the recovery was stronger was precisely because we took measures that limited the spread of the virus. So why we would suddenly now just throw open the doors and let it rip and pretend that this is about protecting the economy just tries to ignore the reality of what's happened in the first two years of the pandemic. It's an, an enormous enormous policy failure. And it reflects the narrow view of the economy that people like uh, Morrison and Perrottet have uh, and their uh, vested interests in trying to cater to a a narrow segment of business without thinking about how the well-being of the whole society is so critical to how the economy can function. It's also setting up a dynamic, and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks, where individual sectors and workers are going to be asked to carry the burden of keeping things open and the supply chains going. So the Prime Minister last week made reference to the fact that teachers should go to work regardless of the situation because the rest of the economy and and other families are relying on their availability, basically saying they should make a judgment that they should put their own health at risk if they even if they feel like they're exposed because, well, they need to. Everyone else needs them to do it. So setting workers against workers in a really nasty environment where people are already stressed and and under enormous pressure. There's all kinds of things that are wrong in that view, Francis, that we uh, need to unpack. First of all, is the rights of those workers. You know, the reality is every worker in Australia has the right to refuse unsafe work. And I humbly suggest going to work when you're COVID infected or when the person next to you at work is COVID infected is absolutely unsafe work. Unsafe for you, unsafe for your colleagues, unsafe for your customers or clients. Number two, there's, uh, again, just this false counterpoint between the well-being of the economy and and how this is going to unfold. And if you actually think it's going to help the economy to force people to go to work while they're sick with a highly contagious disease, you've got it absolutely backwards uh, because all that's going to happen, you'll have a quick fix if you force a few people back to work now, but those people are going to infect others. We know how Omicron has been raging. And then the impact on supply chains is going to be even worse. It's really just doing more of the same sorts of policies that put us in this mess right now. Now, I wish we could wind back the clock to early December and say, hang on, there's a new variant coming. It's way more contagious than anything else. We got to bring back some of these policies. We got to bring back uh, capacity limits. We got to bring back masking, distancing. We got to roll out tests so that people can tell whether they're contagious or not. And we got to support people to stay at home in the interest of public health. Those are all things that we had in place 
in Australia and then took away because a few politicians wanted to stand up and pound their chests and declare victory and say that we're going to take some wickets off of COVID. Uh, vastly premature and vastly underestimated the, the threat that Omicron posed. Now, we unfortunately cannot wind back the clock to early December, but that doesn't mean it's too late to do everything we can to try and stop more contagion. In the meantime, we've got a crisis. There's no doubt about it. So the people who can go to work are going to be asked to do a lot, including working overtime. We're going to see if there's other sources of labor that we can draw on, like retirees or students, where that's appropriate. Um, And we're going to have to limit what we do so that we're doing the most important things and we're going to save some of the other stuff. And if that means reducing hours in retail shops and uh, reducing capacity in hospitality and some of the other things, well, that's a, a, a puny price to pay compared to the risks that we face from the all-out contagion uh, that we're experiencing uh, today. None of this is going to be helped by redefining contagion. This is one ridiculously transparent approach the government has taken to say, for example, you're only a close contact if you were indoors face-to-face with someone for four hours. Where on earth did that idea come from? That is not scientific at all. Do you think I could not catch COVID, Omicron, from someone if I was face-to-face with them for three hours and 59 minutes? Yeah, it happens in seconds, not minutes, not hours. So that uh, attempt to redefine the problem out of existence obviously isn't going to work. And then even for people who pass that higher threshold, they're now being forced to go back to work as soon as they pass a negative rat test. And we know that those are very um, inaccurate in many cases anyways. So, you know, these things are only going to make it worse. They I think, are designed by the government to try and manage the political outrage that they're facing right now. People see empty supermarket shelves and they say, hey, we sacrificed for two years and this is what we got. You know, there's going to be an enormous backlash against uh, the Commonwealth government, uh, the government, New South Wales and some of the others for these errors. And their effort to manage that will be to get stuff back on the shelves, even if it means people die, literally, in order to put it there. Jim, what happened to our commitment to income support as a, as a central plank to providing people stability uh, in their time of sickness so that they can stay at home and they don't have to make that false choice between going to work sick or going without pay? It seems to have dropped off the conversation Absolutely. Whereas for a long time, it was our ace in the pack in trying to hold back the rate of infection. It just doesn't seem to matter anymore. This is another area, Francis, where Australia has really snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, when COVID first hit, uh, the government, you know, against their knee-jerk instincts, you got to remember who these folks are, right? The coalition people uh, do not believe in, you know, an active role for government. They do not believe in deficits. They do not believe in spending. And despite all that, they brought in some incredibly expensive and incredibly important and incredibly effective policies. You know, they were flaws in those policies. JobKeeper, for example, should have had more conditions attached to it. Um, but on the whole, it did a great job at protecting people's jobs, even if they weren't working on a day-to-day basis. Same goes for the coronavirus supplement that topped up uh, incomes for people who were not employed anymore. And those programs literally cost over $100 billion between them and account for most of the federal government's deficit. Um, ironically, they, they really, really helped. Uh, in fact, poverty declined 
This seems incredible that poverty would decline in the middle of a pandemic, but it did because of these incredibly powerful programs. And most importantly, they did allow people to stay home, not go out and infect others or get infected themselves when public health goals indicated that they should stay home. So that was a great success. Not perfect, but a great success. However, within months, the sort of knee-jerk austerity that lurks in the coalition government led them to say, no, this is wrong. We've got to get rid of these policies as quickly as possible. So they began to phase them out later in 2020, eliminated them entirely in early 2021. And then that was just uh, destructively premature because we had other outbreaks. Of course, we had the Delta outbreak, which was very bad. And now we've got the Omicron outbreak. So they had to kind of start from scratch again, and they invented some whole new policies that were not as generous, not as accessible, and not as effective. So we still do have now some lockdown benefits and isolation payments. Uh, Some of them are bizarrely limited and means-tested, and you have to jump through five hoops in order to get them, and that defeats the purpose. You've also got very punitive rules that have just excluded hundreds of thousands of working people who don't qualify for these lockdown benefits or isolation benefits because they also get some kind of social uh, benefit on the side. So, you know, it's just it's it's a deliberately ideological, half-hearted effort to put something in place. And we should have just stuck with what we had. If it's not broken, don't fix it. But their uh, knee-jerk reflexes to downsize uh, the benefit payments, reduce the deficit and get back to quote unquote normal, unfortunately led them to these additional mistakes in the area of income security. So right now, lots of people are reluctant to even take a test. Part of the problem is there aren't any tests. But even when they're there, people are reluctant to take them uh, because in many cases, it means they'll lose their income if they have to stay away from work. And that's a disaster. That's a public health disaster as well as an economic disaster. It certainly is. Jim, just to finish, as we head into a federal election here in Australia, what should be the message from unionists and workers and what should be our position in the campaign in order to get the best outcome for ordinary workers as we face another year of navigating a a pandemic that we're going to have to live with the consequences of for a long time to come, but we want to be able to reset what our goals are, what the values that underpin our policies are that help people to live the best life they can in difficult circumstances. You know, uh, the pandemic obviously has just been a a catastrophe, uh, particularly for those who got ill or who lost uh, loved ones. Uh, It's been a catastrophe that's been very unequal. People who've suffered most are the the people in insecure or precarious jobs, uh, people who are easily disposed of. Of course, lower income and ethnic and racial communities uh, experienced uh, both COVID and then the layoffs uh, that resulted from COVID more severely. And then the frontline workers, not just healthcare workers, but think about grocery store clerks and delivery people and cleaners. They're, the, in a way, the more humble jobs that were essential to us getting through, and they faced greater risks compared to, say, a professional who didn't lose a cent and got to do their job safely from home throughout the whole pandemic. So uh, this has had a terrible, disequalizing impact on our society. On the other hand, I think there's some lessons, and I think that Australians have learned many of those lessons. Uh, We have learned, first of all, that those jobs, those underpaid, undervalued jobs are in fact essential, and maybe we should start treating them and the people doing them 
as essential workers, you know, instead of saying you just get the, the minimum wage and no regular hours and you don't even get, you know, sick pay if you're casual, then uh, maybe we should actually elevate the status of these jobs and protect the people doing them. Uh, secondly, we learned that income security is vital. Uh, this whole idea, uh, you know, that there's dole bludgers out there, you know, people manipulating the system so that they don't have to go to work. Well, we've just been through an episode where probably half of all adult Australians got some kind of income support from government. And it proves that having government there to underpin the incomes of people is actually essential for all of us. And that idea that, you know, there's a despised minority out there and we'll just throw them a few crumbs. I think that idea has changed. So has the idea to the role, uh, ideas about the role of government. You know, the, the idea that government was too big, government was too intrusive, we just have to get government out of the way. Very few people thought that way during the COVID. We were glad the government was there to protect us, to do what was necessary to help us through. And I think we're going to see an era of bigger government uh, from now on. Even the coalition realizes it. Despite their austerity, they're not going to try and downsize everything that was done uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, I think there are some opportunities. The pandemic has reminded us how essential things like uh, the health of working people and the health of our communities are to our overall success as a society. And if we can translate that gut level feeling that people have into concrete political demands and organize and mobilize around them, then, you know, no politician of any stripe is going to be able to stand in the way of the demand of Australians that we use our wealth as a society to benefit and protect all of us, not just the few. And the pandemic has made that age-old demand all that much more urgent. It certainly has. Jim, thank you so much once again for being on the job with us. It's always good to catch up. Thank you, Francis. Thank you for the wonderful job you do with this series. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. From the Centre for Future Work, Dr. Jim Stanford with us here on the job, talking about the importance of, I don't know, including humans in the dynamic of the economy when we assess what's important in terms of our economic decision-making and the health of our communities. And uh, it seems our current government is a long way away from getting the message that you cannot have an economy unless you have people who are well to work in it, Sally. That's right. It's not abstract. It's not numbers it's not balance sheets and, you know, profit margins. It's actually human beings. And, yeah, it won't work without them. It will not work without them. Hey, thanks for being on the job with us again. You Don't forget to leave us a review if you can. Uh, it always helps other people find the podcast. We love your reviews. If you've got any questions, you can email us or any story suggestions or people you think we should talk to. OTJ podcast at protonmail.com.au is where you go to do that. Send us an email there. And Sally, uh, we can still follow everything that you've got to say on the socials. That's right. I'm at Sally Rugg. Better on Twitter, a bit boring on Instagram, but I'm, I'm around. And Francis is at St. Frankly. Great to talk to you again, mate. Uh, great to be back on board for 2022. And we'll catch you again next week on the job. See you, mate. Bye. Yeah.